Tonight, straight from the source, in 27 hours, the government is set to shut down. And right now, there is no deal and really no hope of one as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is outlining new demands, but his own conference is still voting against him. Yes, again. Plus, one of Donald Trump's co-defendants in Georgia has just pleaded guilty, striking a plea deal with prosecutors. The question is, could more deals be on the horizon? What it all means for the former president. Also, the Joint Chiefs Chairman did not mince words in his retirement speech today, calling Trump a wannabe dictator without naming him. Former Vice President Mike Pence is here to respond to that in moments. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. The U.S. is on the brink of a government shutdown tonight with really no plan in sight. With all the infighting, all the F-bombs, all the votes that have been happening and also not happening on Capitol Hill, right now there is still no deal to keep the government open after tomorrow at midnight. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's own conference sank his last-ditch plan earlier today, and tonight he emerged with this message for the Senate. I think if we had a clean one without Ukraine on it, we could probably be able to move that through. I think if the Senate puts Ukraine on there and focuses Ukraine over America, I think, think that could cause real problems. Of course, the key word there is probably. So far, the far right of McCarthy's party has not relented. They've been blocking him at every turn. And on the prospect of a shutdown and what it means for regular Americans, some of whom, unlike members of Congress, may miss their paycheck after tomorrow night, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said this. I promise you, most Americans aren't too worried about the government shutting down, which, which is a serious problem. But, but this is because Democrats shut down the country. Of course, there is a real-life impact. Millions of federal employees won't get paid, on top of a million active-duty troops. Those who rely on food assistance may not have access to it. There could also be serious disruptions to air travel, with flights delayed, completely canceled, the ramifications can be spread far and wide. And let's get straight to the source tonight with the former vice president and current 2024 presidential candidate, Mike Pence. Mr. Vice President, thank you for being here. We appear to be just 24 hours thank away you, from a government shutdown. Do you believe that it's worth right. shutting the government down for these, these demands from the lawmakers on the far right? Will the party be any better off after a shutdown happens? Well, first, let me say, you know, we have a debt in this country now the size of our nation's economy for the first time since World War II. And I, and I welcome efforts uh, uh, by Republicans in the House and the Senate to take a stand for fiscal responsibility. But, uh, you know, I, I, I have been through one of these government shutdowns uh, during our administration. I've been through I've been through a few back when I was a member of Congress mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Caitlin, I'm, I'm confident uh, that they'll sort through it. But what's disappointing to me, and I think millions of Americans, is that uh, uh, all the arguments that will lead to this shutdown and may lead, you know, may have the government shut down uh, in terms of non-essential workers and, and programs uh, for some days or even weeks, as we saw in the past. At the end of the day, we're still not talking about the primary causes of, of the national debt. Uh, and uh, I truly do believe that the time has come for us to elect leadership to the White House that'll square with the American people uh, and bring common sense reforms to the entitlement programs that are 70% of the federal budget. Essentially what's, what we're driving toward a government shutdown 
over only touches 10 percent of the federal budget. Uh, And I think the time has come to put our nation back on a path of fiscal solvency. Joe Biden's policy is insolvency. He won't even talk about entitlement reform. And in all fairness, former President Trump's policy is identical to Joe Biden's. I've been willing to talk about it, take them on. If I'm president of the United States, we'll, we'll bring those reforms forward for younger Americans and we'll put Social Security and Medicare back on a solid foundation as well. Yeah, I know that's something that you've criticized both of those leaders for before. But when it comes to these negotiations that are happening right now, we just heard from Speaker McCarthy a few moments ago saying that the Senate needs to drop the Ukraine funding from its plan in order for it to to pass the House. I mean, you've heard from Senator McConnell, who says he believes there's no excuse for Congress not to support more aid to Ukraine. Do you believe that Speaker McCarthy is wrong here? Well, I I think, you know, Caitlin, I was uh, and have been one of the strongest voices uh, in in the Republican field for continuing to provide the Ukrainian military with the support they need uh, to defeat and repel the Russian invasion. I I think, frankly, I think any faltering support among Republicans is more a reflection of the fact that Joe Biden has done a terrible job explaining what our national interest is. We hear these gauzy speeches about democracy in the world when I believe uh, that, that giving the Ukrainian military what they need to defeat uh, that Russian invasion is in our national interest, because I have no doubt if Vladimir Putin overruns Ukraine, it's not going to be long before he crosses a border of a NATO country that our soldiers will be required to go and fight. And so I believe in that old Reagan doctrine that if, if you're willing to fight uh, the communists in your country, we'll give you the means to fight them there so we don't have to fight them. Uh, so I, I stand strongly for the principle that it's important with accountability, not a blank check, but it's important that the United States continue to provide the Ukrainian military what they need. And, and I am hopeful as they move forward uh, resolving this budget impasse that, uh, that some level of funding will be able to continue uh, to support Ukraine's effort against the Russian invasion. Yeah, I, I heard that comment about a blank check also on the debate stage on Wednesday night from people like Governor Ron DeSantis. I don't know anyone who's advocating for a, a blank check for Ukraine, but also you didn't hear right. a ton of specifics from your fellow 2024 Republican candidates on what they're the ones who don't advocate for more funding for Ukraine as far as how to resolve this on Wednesday night. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I heard... Uh, I heard Ron DeSantis say he's going to end the war and never said how he's going to end the war. Donald Trump says he'll end the war in a day. And, you know, the only way you could end the Ukraine war in a day is if you gave Vladimir Putin everything he wants. And, uh, and that actually is what Vivek Ramswamy is proposing. Let him, let, him, let him keep what he has grabbed through this brutal and unconscionable invasion and then promise him that, that Ukraine will never be uh, in NATO. Look, there, there's... There is no substitute for American leadership on the world stage. This is one of those moments that, that I believe America needs to continue to exercise uh, our role as leader of the free world, marshal our allies in the West to do even more than they've done uh, before. Uh, because as I said, uh, in that same debate uh, that, uh, that got a little sporty and got a little loud, I still wanted to make the point uh, that, uh, boy, if, if, if Vladimir Putin rolls over Ukraine that'll and, and we allow it to happen, that'll give a green light uh, to Xi and, and communist China to roll into Taiwan. I think the best way forward uh, for a peace on the world stage is to continue to provide American support and American leadership as Ukraine fights 
for their territory and sovereignty. Yeah, sporty is one word for it. But speaking of the military, today in Washington, General Mark Milley swore in the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He made this comment in his parting remarks from his role. We don't take an oath to a country. We don't take an oath to a tribe. We don't take an oath to a religion. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. We take an oath to the Constitution and we take an oath to the idea that it's America and we're willing to die to protect it. It was quite clear who he was talking about there. What was your reaction to that moment? Well, look, I, I haven't agreed with every decision that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has made in the last two years with a lot of the woke politics that have made their way into the Pentagon. But I expect all of that's coming out uh, of the Biden uh, White House. And, uh, and I'm grateful for General Milley's long career of service in the uniform of the United States. Caitlin, I, I, I don't know uh, who he was referring to there, but I must tell you that Donald Trump's recent comments uh, regarding General Milley were inexcusable. I mean, that uh, when you think of General Milley's uh, incredible years of service in the uniform uh, of the United States uh, to uh, to make the kind of statements the former president made are just just unacceptable. But it's one of the reasons why I I, everywhere I go across the country and and I and I think it might be a reflection of the way I've tried to carry myself over my career. People come up to me and uh, they thank me for our commitment to civility. Uh, They they, uh, uh, I think the American people long for us to restore a threshold of civility and, and move yep. past this season of personal invective that, frankly, has uh, it's infected our politics for a whole lot longer uh, than during the years of our administration. You yeah, know, we've been put, around you Washington know. a while, Caitlin. It's been around for a while. And uh, I think the American people want to see better. But we saw it really, I mean, at the forefront. It is very clear that he was talking uh, about former President Trump. I mean, do you agree that that Donald Trump is a wannabe dictator? Well, what I agree with is what General Milley said about about the oath that men and women in uniform take. Um, You know, my son's a captain in the Marine Corps. My son-in-law is a lieutenant in the United States Navy. And uh, Caitlin, as as I recounted, in my book, in the days leading up to January 6th, uh, two and a half years ago, my son, the Marine, looked at me at one point and said, Dad, you, you take the same oath I take, and that is to support and defend the Constitution of the right, United States. Right, but you States. worked closer. I, I know by God's grace I did my duty that day, and uh, I, I can't affirm or, or uh, comment on uh, or what or who General Milley was referring to, but I can, I can affirm... Uh, uh, his uh, uh, his his uh, eloquent reference to uh, the men and women who served in the uniform of the United States day and throughout the history of this country. I mean, they put clearly, on the uniform I'll, I'll just and say they clearly, take an oath and they keep that oath every Mr. day. Mr. Vice President, clearly Trump thought that he was referring to him because he responded to that after calling General Milley a, a moron. He added that the man that he picked to be Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, he called him a, quote, woke fool. I mean, obviously, this is after what you referenced there. Trump implied that General Milley should be executed for treason. Are those comments beyond the pale in your view? Well, as as I said, his earlier comments uh, regarding General Milley uh, were inexcusable and and really have no place in in the public debate. But I think it's one of the reasons why, despite what some of the national polls may show, I, I I think Republican primary voters 
uh, know that we need new leadership, not just in the White House, uh, but in the Republican Party. And that's why, you know, I'll be back in Iowa first thing in the morning, and uh, we're going to continue to take our case of a, a commitment of that, that broad-based conservative agenda that's defined our movement for years. Uh, but also, I, you know, I, I'm, I was inspired by Ronald Reagan to become a Republican, and it was his conservative agenda it was his optimism, and it was his civility, I think, that made it possible for him to lead an administration that, that revived you the country and literally, literally changed the world. You talk about civility at length, and you said you think Republican voters know, but I think the question is, do they? Because right now, Trump is running away with the race. I mean, lately, he has called for the parent company of a news network to be investigated for treason. He's vowing to seek retribution if he wins. He says quite blatantly that he will go after and target his political uh, opponents. I mean, with comments like that, do you believe that he is a threat if he returns to the Oval Office? Look, I, you know, I spent four years uh, trying to explain Donald Trump's words, and uh, I'm out of that business now, Caitlin. What I can tell you, you is know that everywhere I go, everywhere I go, Republican voters believe that Joe Biden uh, has weakened this country at home and abroad. I mean, we're, we're struggling in this economy. We have the worst border crisis in American history. That disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan but with all due respect, this isn't about freedom. President Biden. It's and, about the Republican and the American front people runner right know now, that. Mr. Vice President. Well, I, I, I hear you, I, I, and I know you all like to focus on those national polls. I'm just telling you, what's happening on the ground is a lot more dynamic than it looks in the day in and day out polling that you might see. I mean, I'm convinced that well more than half of Republican primary voters know that we need a change. And uh, I'm gonna continue to work my heart out to earn the right to be our standard bearer and to carry us to victory. I, one of the polls I really liked recently, Caitlin, that, that uh, said that uh, had me beating Joe Biden 52 to 46 by the widest margin uh, of others in the field. And uh, so, We'll continue to carry that message. I have great confidence in Republican primary voters, caucus goers in Iowa, and uh, I I've believe we're going to have that. new leadership. I've, I've heard you say that before, but I mean, it's not just one p cherry picked poll or something like that. The polls roundly show that Trump is ahead, and he's making comments like that, accusing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, implying that he, he has committed treason. Today, he was making light of an attack on a prominent political figure's spouse in California, obviously, Speaker, former Speaker Pelosi's husband, with those comments and saying that news networks should be investigated for treason, is that someone who you believe is unfit to be back in the Oval Office? Is it a threat to the, the United States if he's back there? Well, I, I'm running for president of the United States uh, because I, I believe uh, our party and our country need new leadership. And I've been very clear about that. I uh, and, uh, but no and Republicans will really directly but, criticize uh, I, uh, him. I think that's what stands out to people when they watch a debate stage like they did on Wednesday night. There's just these thinly veiled kind of uh, criticisms of Donald Trump. No one is sounding the alarm about the comments that he's been making. Well, I, I think if you, if you rewind the tape, uh, you're not the first person I've spoken to about about General Milley. I've been very forthright about that. I've been very critical of, uh, of Donald Trump's plan to pass a 10% tax on all imports into the United States of America. And of course, I said from the time that I announced for president and going forward that I think no one who puts themselves above the Constitution should ever be president of the United States. And I'm going to continue to speak plainly about that. But I have to tell you, uh, Republican primary voters are, are, are less focused on the field 
of Republican candidates and the former president as they are on the disastrous policies of the Biden administration, Caitlin. But as this fall continues to go forward, as the caucus happens on January 15th, New Hampshire after that, uh, I think people are going to continue to focus, to, to, to dial in. And I'm more convinced than ever that Republican primary voters know that uh, Donald Trump had his time. Uh, but Joe Biden doesn't even know what time it is. Okay, and I just we think need it's notable that you're leadership not in the White House that can bring our country the comments back. Specifically that I'm asking you about your former boss, someone that you know very well. Say again, uh, you, it, what was your question? I didn't hear it. I just think it's, it's, I understand that your focus is on President Biden. He's the current occupant of the White House. But to actually run against President Biden, I mean, Donald Trump is far and away the front runner. And I just think it's notable you're not specifically addressing these comments, the ones on Paul Pelosi, the ones on uh, going after news networks for, for investigating them for treason, going after his political opponents. Caitlin, Caitlin, if I addressed everything Donald Trump said every day, I'd talk about nothing else. Uh, as I said, I, I've already addressed in previous interviews my, my uh, uh, concern about the comments about General Milley. But also, you know, I went up to New Hampshire a couple weeks ago and I said, we've come to a Republican time for choosing. You know, I, I joined the Republican Party uh, because I was, I was drawn to the party by Ronald Reagan and by an agenda of American leadership in the world, strong defense, limited government, less taxes, traditional moral values. Uh, but I see Donald Trump and some of his imitators in this race literally walking away from that agenda and embracing a populism unmoored to conservative principles. I mean, think about it for a second. Where, where we stood with our allies and stood up to our enemies. I mean, Donald Trump and others in the field are embracing a this policy of appeasement and isolationism that's growing in our party, where we cut taxes. As I just said, Donald Trump is advocating what could be one of the largest tax increases yeah. in history, and he won't even talk about dealing with the national debt. And finally, on the right to life, we, we had a pro-life administration, uh, appointed the judges that gave America a new beginning for life, returned the question of abortion to the states and the American people. Now Donald Trump has taken to to blaming overturning Roe versus Wade on election losses a couple of years ago and saying that a pro-life bill that protects unborn babies when a heartbeat is detected, he described that as a terrible mistake. Those are real departures from the agenda okay. that we governed under and the agenda that really has defined the Republican Party uh, for decades. And I want people to know that that if I'm president of the United States, I'm, I'm going to lead our country back to security and prosperity yeah. on that broad-based conservative agenda. Former Vice President Mike Pence, I just think it's notable you'll talk about his positions, but not those comments specifically. But thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for joining us, former Vice President Mike Pence. Thank you, Caitlin. We also have some breaking news just in regarding special counsel Jack Smith's investigation and prosecutor's request for a limited gag order for former President Donald Trump. But first, to major news out of Georgia tonight, where one of Donald Trump's co-defendants has just pleaded guilty in the election interference case. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
Breaking news tonight with a brand new filing just in from the team of special counsel Jack Smith in a fight that is playing out right now in these court filings over a partial gag order request for Donald Trump in the election interference case. All of this has to do with Trump's own words. And this is what's in the filing tonight. Jack Smith quoting Trump's post that we were just talking about with former Vice President Pence there about General Milley, saying essentially that he had committed treason, baselessly obviously saying that, that he deserved to be executed. Of course, remember, Milley could be a witness in one or both of Trump's federal cases. We know that he's spoken to investigators at least once. And in this filing, Smith notes that Milley is a known witness. And as we reported back in May, he spoke with those investigators. That had to do with the classified documents, but also Trump's actions at large. Also tonight, in the, another development, this time in the Georgia case, we have the first guilty plea in any of Trump's four criminal cases. This is for Scott Hall. He's the bail bondsman that's accused of plotting with Sidney Powell to breach election equipment in the state of Georgia. But he has now agreed to flip, to testify for the prosecution in that case. For more on all of these developments that are coming in tonight, even the last minute ones, we have CNN legal analysts Ellie Honig and Carrie Cordero here with us. Ellie, I want to start with you because this was just, I mean, truly moments before we came on air that we got this filing from Jack Smith and this fight that's playing out over the gag order. He is using Trump's own words against him and saying, telling Judge Chutkin that these attacks and the attacks on people in Smith's own office are making it more urgent and that they need this gag order. Do you think it makes it more likely? Oh, for sure, Caitlin. I think Donald Trump's statements about Mark Milley are and should be the prosecution's Exhibit A in their request for this gag order. If you look at DOJ's original gag order from earlier this week, it's actually quite overbroad in my view. They asked for a gag order preventing Donald Trump from saying anything, quote, disparaging about essentially any parties in the case. He's allowed to say disparaging things. You can say disparaging things about a judge, a prosecutor. They have to have thick skin. But here is where the line is. You cannot make a statement that crosses over from disparaging into a threat against a known witness. And I think the statement that he made about Mark Milley satisfied both of those latter criteria and is a perfect example of why the judge should issue at least a limited gag order. Yeah, and he's still attacking Milley even more tonight, calling him a moron. That's since that filing happened. But Carrie, I want to ask you about the other development because this could be just as significant when it comes to what's happening in Georgia. Uh, this is part of this alleged conspiracy there. Scott Hall was one of the first people to turn himself in. He's a he was accused of being essentially in cahoots with Sidney Powell on breaching voting machines. And now we've learned about this. I mean, how big of a victory is this for the district attorney's office in this case? I think it's a step forward for there. Obviously, uh, the district attorney is going to be um, pleased any time that they are able to resolve um, any of the defendants with uh, a guilty plea. It keeps them from having to go to trial on that particular case. It's a win. Um, now, notably, this individual, it looks like the plea is for misdemeanors. He doesn't look like he'll serve any jail time, and he will testify against some of the, the other witnesses. But it does, I think, also highlight that each of these defendants, because the DA charged so many people in this case, each of these defendants is really differently situated. So the case against the former president and some of those closest to him is different than individuals like Mr. Hall, who can plead out to misdemeanors. Yeah. I mean, but Ellie, what's what's your question when you see this? I mean, he, he is taking that plea deal, getting probation for misdemeanors. But do you expect that he's just the first of many to potentially take this route here? 
I do, Caitlin. This is how prosecutors build cases. You flip one person, you hope to flip that person up the chain to the next person and so on. And there's really two of the defendants here who I think should be particularly worried about Scott Hall's cooperation. First of all, as you said in the intro, Sidney Powell, because she's charged along with Scott Hall in that scheme to hack into or access without, it, without permission the voting systems down in Coffee County, but also Jeffrey Clark, the DOJ official, who, by the way, lost his removal motion today. He's having mm -hmm. a very bad day because Scott Hall had a one hour long conversation with Jeffrey Clark on January 2nd of 2021. And now prosecutors are going to know all about what was said during that call. So this is a very big step forward for prosecutors. Yeah, that's a really good point and something to watch closely. Ellie Honig, Gary Cordero, thank you for joining me on this Friday night. Thanks, Kayla. Also tonight, as we look at this, a fixture of the Senate is gone. Democrat Dianne Feinstein casting her final vote just yesterday before passing away at the age of 90. When we return, someone who helped that trailblazer with some of her most defining work in the Senate as we look back at her legacy. Tonight, from Washington to California, people are mourning the loss of a political giant. Senator Dianne Feinstein, the longest serving woman in Senate history, died at her D.C. home at the age of 90. She cast her last vote just yesterday, and word of her death prompted a moment of silence and emotion from the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. So today we grieve. We look at that desk and we know what we have lost. There was one description of the late senator that you heard repeatedly today, trailblazer. Feinstein broke her first barrier when she became the first woman mayor of San Francisco, a bittersweet milestone that was born out of tragedy. The assassination of George Moscone and supervisor Harvey Milk, who was the first openly gay elected official in the state of California. I walked down the line of supervisor's offices and found Harvey Milk put my finger in a bullet hole trying to get a pulse. It was the first person I'd ever seen shot to death. And that began a saga. I became mayor as a product of assassination, of the mayor being killed and the first openly gay public official being killed by a friend and colleague of mine. That tragedy went on to define her battle for gun control and the passing of the assault weapons ban in 1994, which of course has since expired, but she never stopped fighting for it. And she never let glass ceilings stop her either. She became California's first woman elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992. Her run was sparked by her anger while watching the confirmation hearings of Justice Clarence Thomas. What did I see? but an all-male Senate Judiciary Committee grilling Anita Hill. And it was not nice. And it was not what one would like to see. And that was my incentive to run in 1992. Tonight, her colleagues are recalling her passion for service, her grit, her grace, her integrity. As the first chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, she released a report on the CIA's torture program after 9-11 in defiance of national security officials and then President Obama. History will judge us by our commitment to a just society governed by law 
and the willingness to face an ugly truth and say, never again. There may never be the right time to release this report, but this report is too important to shelve indefinitely. That report on how the CIA detained and interrogated suspected terrorists is a big part of her legacy. And the lead investigator for that report, Daniel Jones, is with me now. And Daniel, I'm so grateful that you're joining me here to, to talk about that massive part of her legacy. But I mean, first, just given the work that you did for her, I want to get your reaction to her passing tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's an honor to speak about Senator Feinstein's legacy. She was a trailblazer. She was a leader. Uh, that report, which was so important to our country to make sure that we don't engage in those activities again, simply wouldn't have happened without Senator Feinstein. Yeah, it is such a defining aspect of that. And you're talking about how it wouldn't have happened without her. I mean, it pitted her against two different presidents from two different parties. How significant, in your view, is the role that she played in a public accounting of the CIA's conduct? Well, as, as people know, Senator Feinstein was one of the biggest supporters of the intelligence community, uh, of the Department of Defense. Um, she's often known as one of the big defenders of controversial programs. So she was uniquely positioned to take on the oversight program that looked at the CIA's uh, interrogation and torture tactics post 9-11. She was a real consensus builder, and she demanded from all of us on the investigations team that we look at these facts as we uncovered them uh, and documented in the way that was extremely bipartisan, extremely uh, approach it in a very cold and calculating position where it's like every fact we had, we had to have footnotes. Um, and as you know, that report was 6,700 pages. It had 38,000 footnotes, um, and it found basically three things. One is that the CIA's torture was ineffective. It didn't produce the intelligence the CIA said. Two, the CIA lied to the, uh, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Department of Justice, American people. And then finally, three, that it was massively mismanaged. And as you know, she went up against both the Bush and the Obama administrations to get that report finally released, or at least an executive summary of about 500 pages released. Yeah, and she felt that the what they had, the redactions in it were worth actually getting what was able to get out there. I mean, she faced so many objections about this. You know, at the, at the time, the FBI, DHS, they were warning law enforcement agencies about being on heightened alert in light of that report. And she was talking to my colleague, Wolf Blitzer, at the time about it and defended it, telling him this. Was it worth it to release this report today if, in fact, American lives, whether diplomats, military personnel, civilians are going to be in danger? Look, there is no perfect time to release this report. Uh, this began 12 years ago. Uh, there have been attacks uh, without this report coming out. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't clean our house. And I think John McCain said it very well of what America is all about. We admit our mistakes. We commit ourselves to never let these mistakes happen again. Obviously, McCain's support was so critical at that time. If she had not gotten this release, Daniel, where do you think the U.S. would be? Well, I mean, I don't think we would have the facts out on the table as we have them. I mean, Dianne Feinstein did not think our country was perfect, but she thought what made it great was our ability to shine a, a flashlight on our problems and correct them and make sure they don't happen ever again. And again, that report would not exist without her steadfast leadership. Would not exist without her leadership. Your work on that as well, Daniel Jones. Thank you for joining us on such a, a big part of her legacy tonight. 
Thank you. My pleasure. And we are live tonight also on Capitol Hill. As President Biden is laying out the stakes of what is going to happen if the clock strikes midnight tomorrow with still no funding deal in sight. Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. We just have a little over 24 hours before the government is set to shut down. As tonight, Speaker McCarthy is now pushing things off to the Senate after he failed earlier today to get Republicans in the House to pass anything that could potentially keep the government open. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol Hill tonight. Melanie, uh, what's happening? Is there any <laughs> deal being formed? Are we any closer than we were 24 hours ago uh, to getting any kind of funding deal? No, House Republicans are scrambling to come up with a plan to avoid a government shutdown, even after they huddled for nearly two hours tonight in the Capitol to talk about their very limited options. So there is still no consensus on what, if anything, they are going to bring to the House floor tomorrow. But Speaker Kevin McCarthy did emerge from that meeting, signaling he could be open to a more simple stopgap spending bill as long as it doesn't include money for Ukraine. And that is a bit of a different posture for Kevin McCarthy, who up until this point has said any bill to fund the government needs to include border security provision. So clearly a shift in strategy at the very last minute after his efforts to work with Republicans have come up short and that failure to rally around a GOP plan has created some tension in the ranks. Let's take a listen. We're the governing majority. This is what we're supposed to do as a governing majority. We're supposed to lead. And uh, it's kind of hard to lead when you got a you know, a significant number of people that uh, that are on the wrong snap count when you call the play. So. That's where we are. They killed the most conservative position we could take um, and then called themselves the real conservatives, which is like, make that make sense. In January, we, pro we promised 12 appropriations bills. Uh, we should have stayed here in August. Uh, I didn't set the calendar. Someone else did. Now, the Senate will take a procedural vote tomorrow on a bipartisan plan to fund the government, which does include Ukraine money, but they cannot vote on final passage until potentially as late as Monday. So the bottom line here, Caitlin, is that there is still no clear plan to avoid a government shutdown, which is now just 24 hours away. I mean, Melanie, it seems like Republicans are confused about what Republicans are, are doing here. I mean, if McCarthy is now saying, well, I'll take this, but not that. I mean, that doesn't seem like that's going to answer the request from the hardliners who say they don't want any short-term bill to happen. Well, the reason why there's so much confusion is because Kevin McCarthy himself has floated a number of different things. They are trying to do a whip count tonight to try to really take a temperature check to see where Republicans are. But that's the bottom line here is there's a lot of confusion. And tomorrow is the last day before they have a government funding deadline. Yeah, it seems pretty clear what's going to happen tomorrow. We'll see what that plan looks like for now. Melanie Zanona, thank you. For a quarter of a century, the family of the murdered hip-hop icon Tupac Shakur has been waiting for justice. Today, a suspect now in custody. The story next. A quarter century after one of the most defining voices in hip-hop was violently silenced, Dwayne Keith Davis has been charged tonight with the murder of Tupac Shakur. What happened that night in 1996 on the crowded Las Vegas Strip was a violent chapter in a really transcendent life. 
P. Frank Williams covered this story for the LA Times and as the former editor of The Source, the magazine, not to be confused with this show that he is now appearing on. <laughs> he is also one of the filmmakers behind Who Killed Tupac? And he joins me now. And I'm so grateful that you're here because, I mean, after 27 years, it is notable that it's, it's Dwayne Keith Davis's own words that led to this moment tonight. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a cultural juggernaut moment for, uh, for hip-hop culture. I think this is a long-awaited uh, verdict. I mean, not verdict, but arrest. I mean, Keefe was telling himself the whole time. And it's not like the Vegas cops didn't know. I mean, they sat him in a room like days after this. And so I think it's just, you know, sometimes you put it out in the zeitgeist. And I think that the Vegas cops probably were a little bit embarrassed that this guy is talking everywhere and they can't arrest him. So I, I think it's a long time coming. So uh, for Shakur family, I think it's a fantastic day. Yeah, I think that's the biggest question that people had when they saw this today is why now? Why did it take this long if this is who it was? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as a person, as I said, who wrote this stuff about Tupac in the 90s and, you know, who killed Tupac with Ben Crump and those kind of things. I think, you know, I think you guys, CNN, do a great job. You know, African-American men are not thought of as people that they want to get justice for. I, I don't think that the Vegas PD was very pressed, but I think it came to a moment where Keefe D., who had already been bragging about this for years, and Orlando said he did it multiple times. Um, he was basically hit a, a, a documentary. He had a book. At some point, you know, you can't just let a guy who's saying, I was in a car and I passed somebody else the gun, not be arrested. So even though they'd made a deal with him before, I want to make sure people know, cops had been in bed with this guy and he turned down another uh, uh, case against him and made a deal back in the day. When you look at this moment, I mean, it, it has been so many years since 27 years, 27 years, which is just kind of it's kind of hard to even fathom. But also in this moment, it's still something that people talk about all the time. It is a point of cultural fascination. I mean, what do you what does it mean for the community overall that this is now something that is being brought to the light again? Well, you know, the thing is, it's ironic how many people that you can talk about 27 years after their death and they were only 25 and you still talk about him at this level. This guy made a uh, he, he was a cultural revolutionary. He was the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King of hip hop. And I think the thing about Tupac that still resonates is that he touched your soul. He wrote, uh, Dear Mama, Keep Your Head Up. These aren't songs about let me be a gangster. These are songs about his mother as a human being. And so I think today, you know, my kids who are 18 year old twins, for them, Tupac represents the emotional freedom, the willingness to do something and break outside of the bounds. So, you know, today I got my Black Panther uh, panel and Tupac, like myself, is a child of the Black Panther Party. And so he was a revolutionary. And I think today um, it's finally a justice. So shout out to his brother, Moprim, his sister said, and uh, I wish Afini was here. Um, she deserves this day. I'm so glad you brought up his family. I mean, what does a moment like this mean for them after those 27 years? Well, you know, like I said, I've obviously been covering this case from the day I was at the hospital after yeah. he got shot. Um, I think imagine if your family member was killed and you knew some of the guys were out there and he was still free. So I think for me, it's a moment of closure. You know, you just want somebody arrested. The other three gentlemen who were in the car that night, they're all deceased. And so this is the last chance, I think, for LA, for Las Vegas police, you know, really kind of make up for lost time. And so for them, hopefully it's some closure. I mean, there's no way that you're gonna make up for what, imagine what Tupac Shakur would have been at 30 or 35 years old. He predicted Barack Obama, by the way, my president is black. So shout out to Pac, we wish we were here. Um, instead of me on this show, but I'm glad you got some justice today, my brother. I know it is, it is that's one of the most heartbreaking parts is to think of, of what could have come next for him, what could have been here. I mean, as someone who's covered this so closely, I'm just so grateful that you're joining on this given 
how closely you followed it. Are, were you surprised by this today? Did you ever think that this day would come? Um, no, I didn't actually, to be honest. No, I, I thought that, the, you know, um, to be completely transparent, I never thought that the Vegas PD wanted to solve the murder of a young black man who was talking about F the police and was a young black panther. So I don't think he was on their list to, to do. But I do think that the pressure from the public, the media, the new documentary they just had on FX, whatever I've done on A&E or Fox or Source, I think it was time. And I think um, it's right. Every American deserves justice, right? Don't you want your kids to have justice if they got murdered on the broad daylight or not broad daylight in the middle of one of the public places in the whole world? So I'm glad that justice is finally here. And again, I keep coming back to Afeni. I wish she would have saw this day as a mother to see justice for her son. So rest in peace, Tupac. And uh, I hope that Kefi, you know, gets what's deserved him. Um, it's time. Yeah, we'll continue to follow these charges closely. P. Frank Williams, thank you for joining us on it tonight. Have a great night. Very grateful for you. Meanwhile, you, here Frank. in New York, there was record-setting rain. It overwhelmed the city today. It sent life-threatening floodwaters into basements, subways, buses. It turned roadways into rivers. The washout that took millions and some city officials by surprise. Tonight, millions of people in New York City and other parts of the Northeast are dealing with a flash flood emergency. When the storm finally passes tomorrow, several months, yes, months worth of rain will have fallen in just 24 hours. Streets turned into rivers. This is what it looked like in Brooklyn today. At LaGuardia Airport, some travelers were forced to wrap plastic bags around their feet just to get through the standing water that had filled the airport. Elsewhere, they had to bring in heavy machinery for water rescues. In New Jersey, this police officer carried a man on his shoulders after he was trapped in his car. There was so much rain, a sea lion at the Central Park Zoo managed to escape her pool when it flooded. The zoo says that she roamed around for a bit, but she was eventually returned safely to her exhibit tonight. Thank you so much for joining me on this Friday night. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.